We continue our series examining China's foreign policy over the decades. Today, we talk about 1965 to 1975, the beginning of the Cultural Revolution, the deepening split between the People's Republic of China and the Soviet Union, and finally, the visit by Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger and the beginning of normalization of relations between the United States and China. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program and subscribing. We can do this show. We can bring you this kind of programming with your support, but not without it. We're joined by Dr. Ken Hammond. He's a professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University. He's the founding director of the Confucius Institute at New Mexico State University and an activist with Pivot to Peace. Ken Hammond, welcome back. Glad to be back, Brian. I'm enjoying our conversations. Likewise. And we're going to, as I mentioned in the introduction, we're going to pick up where we left off. This was following the 1965 counter-revolution that killed more than a million Indonesians and brought down the progressive government of Sukarno, an ally of China, and replaced it with a semi-fascist or fascist military dictatorship aligned with the United States, a very, very big blow to China, increasing China's isolation in world politics at that time. We're going to start there, but Ken, let me begin first by noting that you have a new article that just was published by Monthly Review. It's about the origins of capitalism in China. Now, we're talking about what's happening in the 1960s, but your article is about what was happening in the 10th century or thereabouts. Anyway, just real quick for the audience, what's the name of the article and what's your focus there? Well, the article is called Beyond the Sprouts of Capitalism. And it's an effort to re-examine Chinese economic history, basically for the last thousand years. It's, you know, just a modest undertaking. But I think that the point that I'm trying to make in the article is that when we look at the realities of Chinese history, we look at the realities of the Chinese economy, beginning about the 10th century, that it has all the characteristics, all the attributes that we associate with capitalism when we talk about European economic history. But because of the sort of ideological constraints that have plagued a lot of Marxist discourse since the 1920s and 30s, the influence of certain orthodoxies out of the Soviet Union, you know, there's been this concept of a series of stages that all societies had to pass through from slave society to feudalism to capitalism and on. And that model just doesn't fit the realities of Chinese history. So it's just an attempt to kind of 
relook at what's well established. It's not a particularly controversial set of data, but I want to cast it in the light of seeing China as having had its own particular trajectory of early commercial capitalist development that was distinct from what takes place that we're all familiar with in European history a few centuries later. I'm also interested in how that sets the stage in some ways for understanding China today. You know, there's so much controversy about the nature of China today. Is it capitalist? Is it market socialism? You know, what kind of system is it? And I think that while that's certainly a matter for ongoing debate and discussion, that having a better understanding of the long history of the Chinese economy gives us a little more perspective on putting the present into that context. And one other important point, again, for people who are just joining a discussion about China, Chinese history, China's foreign policy, we're focusing on the modern era, the foreign policy of the People's Republic of China since 1949, when the Communist Party came to power. But many people will think, look, Western Europe and America, these were advanced industrial capitalist countries. And China is part of the third world. China is part of the developing world. And in one way, the People's Republic of China embraced that at Bandung, at the Conference of the Non-Aligned. But one thing that people might not know is how far advanced China's economy was and what a major factor it was in the global economy, far, far, far beyond that of Europe, even not so long ago. That's right. I mean, down till the end of the 18th century, China was the most sophisticated and advanced economy in the world. It had very elaborate productive technologies. It had very sophisticated banking and finance systems. Its capitalism had evolved over hundreds of years and had produced, you know, an economy that was attractive to people from all over the world. That's why Europeans go out to explore and begin the era of European expansionism. They're not just out there on, you know, for their health, they're looking for the wealth that was in Asia, primarily in China. And it's only with the Industrial Revolution and the impact of Western imperialism that China is, as many other parts of the world, China is sort of devolved and integrated into a Eurocentric global division of labor that really neutralized a lot of the dynamism that had existed there for many centuries. So, you know, China's rise today isn't just something that, as you say, is coming from a country that was, oh, just backward and underdeveloped. It's really a return to a multi-centric global economic order after a long period of Euro-American domination. So important. You know, when you think about Walter Rodney's book, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, that whole concept that Africa, which was also in many ways very advanced societies, had become underdeveloped as a consequence of Western imperialist, Western colonial intervention. Something that, again, the Eurocentric or Western-centric view of history doesn't take into account. Absolutely. You know, we talk about the rise of European capitalism, and then it sort of, you know, seamlessly segues into the Industrial Revolution and the creation of the global imperialist system. Often it's treated as if that's the only narrative of capitalist development. 
And I think that a lot of scholarship in the last 20 or 30 years has really helped us recover a much more nuanced sense of just how dynamic places like China, but also places like Egypt and Bengal and India and Tokugawa, Japan, had these very dynamic early modern commercial capitalist economies that get overwritten by the impact of Western imperialism and in some ways kind of disappear from the historical record. So this particular article is just an effort to kind of reclaim that knowledge, reclaim that historical trajectory and bring it back into our understanding. With that said, let's jump into the mid-1960s. We talked again about the counter-revolution in Indonesia, 1965, a big blow to China. China's relations with the Soviet Union are deteriorating. The United States is intervened full-scale in Vietnam, bordering China when the United States intervened in Korea 15 years earlier. That drew China into the Korean War. Hundreds of thousands, maybe as many as a million Chinese people fought in the Korean War. A lot of pressures on China. So deterioration in the relations with the Soviet Union, the loss of Indonesia as an ally, the U.S. war in Southeast Asia. Then in 1966, an internal struggle within the Communist Party of China leads to, culminates in the launching of the great proletarian cultural revolution. That had a very profound impact on Chinese politics and Chinese society. You know, we don't have time to go into all of that history right now. That's very, very important history. But as we go forward now, Ken, into the what happens in the late 1960s, I want to start again for our audience, just to reframe this. In the 1950s, after the Chinese Revolution is victorious, Mao Zedong goes to Moscow. He spends six months there. He meets with Stalin. They form a Soviet-China friendship alliance. Soviet economic advisors and technicians come. Huge amounts of Soviet aid is brought to China. There's an economic model developed with Soviet assistance. So the decade of the 1950s is China as a part of the socialist bloc, the second big power after the Soviet Union, the most populous country in the world. But now in the 1960s, tensions between China and the Soviet Union basically over how to contend with the pressure from the Cold War, the pressure from U.S. and Western imperialism starts to create divisions. The Soviets are trying to lessen tensions with the United States. They're trying to have diplomacy, rapprochement, detente, normalization of relations, arms agreements. And the Chinese are fearing that the Soviets are selling them out, basically. They're putting Soviet-U.S. friendship ahead of Soviet-China friendship. And that tension is growing. And the struggle between them is a political struggle. It's an ideological struggle. It's like, comrades, you are not fighting imperialism properly on the part of the Chinese. You're not steadfast enough. And we remind you of what Lenin wrote. And from the Soviet point of view, they take other Lenin quotes about peaceful coexistence and say, comrades, don't act in such an ultra-left provocative manner, but it's a discussion or a debate between comrades. By the mid-1960s, and especially in 1967, 68, this struggle, political ideological struggle, devolves into a struggle not between parties, not between comrades, 
but between states. In other words, these socialist states are almost at war with each other, and they're no longer calling each other comrades and demanding that they return to the correct revolutionary path. They're now calling each other the greatest threat to peace. In the case of China, they no longer call the Soviet leadership revisionists. They start to use the language that it's social imperialist. It's another imperialist country. And I want to talk about a particular incident where they even start to invoke the language that the Soviet leadership is fascist. And Khrushchev and then Brezhnev, for his part, especially, start to make it clear when they're visiting Western capitals like London that there's a struggle against the Mao leadership in China, and they support that struggle to oust Mao. So the struggle devolves into a state-to-state dispute. I want to go, as we talk about that, over some of the markers, and that would be another nuclear arms agreement, the events in Czechoslovakia. Anyway, but let's get started. Your take. Well, I think you've laid the groundwork there pretty clearly. The contradictions that are evolving between China and the Soviet Union in part have to do, as we've talked about before, with with different models of economic development. And again, the Soviets see the Chinese as being adventurous, being sort of ultra-leftist, pushing, you know, sort of the mass mobilization line and things like that. And they make it pretty clear that they side with a more well, basically bureaucratic or pragmatic approach that relies more on technical expertise and things like that. But that's a matter, you know, of debate within China itself. So there's some differences of policy and orientation in terms of development. But all of that is framed within this context of the global sort of geopolitical situation, which, as you say, is sees the Soviet Union pursuing a program of peaceful coexistence, saying in a sense that in the long run, it will be the superiority of the Soviet socialist system, which will kind of win over the hearts and minds of people around the world. And the exploitation and crises that are inevitable within capitalism will ultimately lead to its destruction. And so in a sense, the Soviet policy is kind of, well, you know, we're just going to ride this out. We're just going to wait and see because we know that ultimately, eventually, we will triumph. And the Chinese, by contrast, having fought and won a very long and arduous revolutionary struggle, having had to defend themselves against the United States in Korea, with the war in Vietnam ramping up on their southern flank, with active covert operations being conducted by the CIA on the China coast and in Tibet, the Chinese are taking a little more a view of things that says that, you know, we really need to maintain and pursue the revolutionary struggle. We need to support revolutionary movements around the world. We need to see American imperialism as a serious challenge. They see the behavior of the Soviets as kind of not exactly giving in to American imperialism, but being willing to tolerate it, being willing to sort of go along and get along for the time being in ways which are frankly inimicable to China's interests. And as we talked about last time, the destruction of the Indonesian Communist Party, yet another indication of just how real for the Chinese, just how real that struggle was. It wasn't something that was just uh, you know, a sort of abstract theoretical model, but it was a concrete struggle that was costing millions of lives and threatened the future of China itself. 
Again, we talked about this a little bit earlier, Ken, but let's also, because we're in the late 60s, talk about the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty signing by the Soviet Union and the United States and other signatories. Now, the quid pro quo of the NPT, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which ultimately becomes an international treaty in 1969, but the quid pro quo was that the nuclear powers will start to and slowly, gradually, incrementally get rid of their nuclear weapons. And in exchange, the non-nuclear countries won't get nuclear weapons. It's going to stop the proliferation of nuclear weapons. Of course, the nuclear powers actually never do get rid of their nuclear weapons, but it puts extreme pressure on non-nuclear powers so as to not acquire nuclear weapons. Many people in the peace movement and people who care about the environment, people who fear nuclear war, in other words, people who have some degree of right thinking, looked at the NPT and thought, hey, that's great. We're starting to finally bring this unmanaged, uncontrolled nuclear arms race into some sort of managed rivalry that may save the human race from actual destruction in a thermonuclear conflict. But from China's point of view, they're looking at it as basically a sellout on the part of the Soviet Union. Talk about that. Sure. And it's not just from China's point of view. Many of the non-aligned nations saw this, saw the non-proliferation agreement, the earlier test ban agreement, as kind of the existing nuclear powers, the great powers, kind of circling the wagons and saying, you know, uh, things are just fine. We have our nuclear weapons, we have our power, and we don't want anybody else getting that. And countries, certainly China, but countries like India as well, and indeed others, had ambitions of their own to develop nuclear weapons, atomic weapons, in their own self-defense, in their own security. And the idea that the great powers, which of course just happened to be the victorious powers from World War II, with the exception of China, but you know, the United States, France, Britain, and the Soviet Union, these were the big nuclear powers, and they were sort of happy to be a club all by themselves and exclude everybody else from this process. So China saw that again as kind of the great powers sort of, you know, getting getting comfortable with each other, working together, trying to chart the future of the world in a way that was now de-escalating, yes, de-escalating the risk of nuclear war, de-escalating the confrontation between the Soviet Union and the United States, but also in that very process, kind of abandoning the cause of revolutionary struggle and the long-term goals of social justice and economic transformation. And for the Chinese, they saw that as a fundamental betrayal of the historical mission of the working class, of the revolution all around the planet. You mentioned earlier, of course, events like the Prague Spring and the intervention by the Soviets in Czechoslovakia in 1968. In that same context, of a kind of working out a spheres of influence agreement, the kind of great power cooperation and collaboration that was inimical to real revolutionary struggle. You know, there was a sort of an agreement that, oh, well, Czechoslovakia is in the Soviet uh, sphere of influence. So pretty much whatever they want to do there is fine with the United States. And the United States would, you know, exercise its power in the areas where it was dominant and everybody could uh, sort of get along with each other. And the Chinese just didn't see that as an acceptable strategy. That's why they characterized the Soviet Union, you know, as a socialist in form, 
but imperialist in practice, imperialist in action, social imperialism. Yeah, this is an important topic. In 1956, the Soviets also intervened in Hungary, in Eastern Europe. Now, Hungary had been a very fascist country before and during World War II. The Soviet Red Army liberated Hungary. And during the 1945-48 period, I think Stalin and the Soviet leadership expected that or hoped that Eastern Europe would be basically neutral countries the way Austria had achieved a certain degree of neutrality. But because of the vicious character of the Cold War, there was no way to actually maintain these neutral countries. The U.S. was you know, desperate to roll back communism, roll back or contain the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union facilitated the communist parties in those countries of Eastern and Central Europe to come to power. Now, it didn't need to do that in Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia had an organic revolutionary outcome as a consequence of the leadership of the partisans in World War II. But Hungary had strong support for the Communist Party, but it was still a a very right-wing country. So the idea of having a socialist government sort of imposed from the top led to a lot of cleavages in society and a lot of unexpressed opposition to socialism and communism. And after Khrushchev's 20th Congress in 1956 and the de-Stalinization, there were a series of rebellions in Hungary, in Poland, and other Eastern European countries, anti-communist rebellions. I mean, they were mixed. There were some socialists and communists in them, but the basic leadership was led by counter-revolutionaries. And the United States vigorously supported the Hungarian counter-revolution, and the Soviets in the Warsaw Pact finally moved in and they suppressed the counter-revolution. You know, it was a bad day for socialism to see Soviet troops in a neighboring socialist country On the other hand, the argument was made that if the counter-revolution had succeeded, it would have brought a hard-right, semi-fascist regime inside what was then the socialist bloc. And that might have led to other, like a chain of events, similar to what ultimately happened in 1987, 88, 89. So the Soviets intervened in Hungary, and China supported the Soviets going into Hungary. And it wasn't really that different from the Soviets going into Czechoslovakia. As a matter of fact, Zhou Enlai, who was the premier of China at that time, said, and this is the contradictoriness, I would say, of this Chinese foreign policy at this time. He says, the aim of the Soviet revisionist leading clique in brazenly invading and occupying Czechoslovakia is to prevent the Czechoslovak revisionist clique from directly hiring itself out to Western capitalists headed by U.S. imperialism and to prevent this state of affairs from giving rise to an uncontrollable chain reaction along the lines of what I said, a counter-revolution in Czechoslovakia spreading to Hungary, spreading you know to East Germany. Right. So in 56, the Chinese, again, yes, they didn't support spheres of influence per se, but they did support the Soviet intervention. They were still part of the socialist camp. I mean, for me at least, Ken, it seems to me that sociologically, it's basically the same series of events in 1968. But now the breakup of the socialist camp, the loss of trust, the fear, apprehension, and the devolution of an ideological political struggle into a state-to-state dispute meant that the Chinese party 
unlike Hungary, doesn't support the Soviet Union. And Zhou Enlai is saying the Soviets are trying to prevent counter-revolution. And at the same time, they say by intervening against the counter-revolution, it demonstrates that the Soviets are, quote, social imperialist, which from my point of view is a big political mistake and accelerates the devolution in China's political outlook towards a state-to-state characterization of the dispute rather than an ideological dispute, such that it opens the door finally to Western imperialism, seeing that these comrades are not fighting as comrades, they're fighting as hostile adversary states, and that provides an opening. Anyway, that's my thought. Yeah, I think that what we see in that shift from 1956 to 1968, that's part of a very complicated kind of tortuous route that Chinese foreign policy takes during this period. And I think that it relates to the efforts that Chairman Mao and Zhou Enlai and others are trying to make to assess what the state of play is in the global arena. You know, that China's feeling very isolated, China's feeling threatened, the Vietnam War is still escalating into the South, and they're trying to determine, you know, in a sort of theoretical way, you know, what's the primary contradiction? I mean, for all the previous period of the PRC, it was pretty obvious that the primary contradiction in the world was the contradiction between socialism and capitalism, between the socialist bloc and the capitalist world led by American imperialism. But now they're questioning that. And I think that that's not a clear course of development. I don't think it's a clearly resolved set of issues. And I think that the statement that you read there from Zhou Enlai is a perfect expression of that, because both the Soviets and the Czechs are being characterized as revisionists. The Soviets are being labeled as this sort of social imperialism. And I think that Zhou Enlai in that statement is kind of trying to have it both ways. And that certainly is an indication of the unresolved thinking on the part of the Chinese leadership, which, of course, is itself at this period in the midst of the Cultural Revolution, trying to sort out profound questions within the Communist Party, within the developmental itinerary of China, that it's not a great moment to be struggling with these issues. And we see that the relationship with the Soviet Union, you know, is about to deteriorate even further to the point where there's open military conflict on the border in a couple of sectors up in Heilongjiang and out in Xinjiang, where there's actual military conflict in the early months of 1969, in the wake of these events in 1968. So it's a time of flux, and I think, frankly, a time of confusion on the part of the Chinese leadership that results in these kinds of jumbled up messages that statement by Zhou Enlai is a good example of. Right, because the Soviet Union, its sociological character, its class character, its social being is the same in 1968 or 1962 or 1958 or 1956 during the events in Hungary. It's the same. It's the same Communist Party. It's got public property. It's not driven by capitalist corporations. It's the same, whatever you want to call it. I would call it a socialist government in the sense that it aspired towards socialism. It had a planned economy. It had the monopoly on foreign trade. It had public ownership of the means of production. It was not motivated or driven by the capitalist profit system. It was the same entity. So the characterization by the Chinese of social imperialism, which means that 
in the Leninist sense, in the Marxist sense, imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism. It's capitalism in its monopoly epic. And the Soviet Union was not that. So they took a, a polemical, I mean, Lenin called the Social Democrats in 1914, the Social Democrats in Germany, Kautsky and the others who didn't oppose their own capitalist government's entrance into World War I. That's where the formulation social imperialist comes from. Lenin said, these people are socialists in words, Kautsky meaning, and the others, most of the socialist leaders who capitulated to the war drive, they're socialists in words, but they're imperialists in deeds, meaning they're not willing to stand up and fight back against their own imperialist government when it's going to war, when the war hysteria is so great. Okay, that's a polemical sort of sally, so to speak, on Lenin's part against Kautsky. But what China was doing by adopting the same language was actually not only characterizing the political formation of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union, but actually applying a false sociological analysis of a worker state, of a socialist government, and now saying the socialist government isn't just revisionist, it's not just opportunist, it's actually on the other side. And once you make that ideological presentation that the Soviets, in fact, are not just bad comrades or opportunist comrades, but they're actually the enemy, then the whole sort of range of options in terms of what's acceptable in terms of a foreign policy orientation shifts. And indeed, as we can see, and as we will see as we continue this march through history, China is sort of exiting the socialist camp altogether. And Nixon and Kissinger being astute imperialist politicians, and especially at the time of the 1969 border clashes that you mentioned, where Soviet troops and Chinese troops are now shooting each other. They're shooting each other. And it's not out of control skirmishes, but they're real battles. And that's when Nixon and Kissinger craft an orientation that says, look, now we can play both of these socialist giants off of each other. It's this like the ultimate cynicism. The U.S. was scaring China by asserting its rapprochement and normalization with the Soviet Union. And then as China becomes more and more frightened that there's a Soviet-U.S. axis against China, China starts to characterize the Soviets as part of the imperialist game. And then the imperialists come back and say, oh, why don't we start to talk? Yeah, I think that there's one other factor that plays into that sort of ongoing calculus of power there, which is the turning of the tide in a sense, or at least the sort of visible transformation that takes place in the American position in Vietnam. The Tet Offensive in February of 1968 breaks the mythology of the American military elite of saying, you know, we're winning the hearts and minds, we're going to, you know, we're going to prevail, we're controlling more and more territory, all this. The Tet Offensive puts paid to that rhetoric. And in part, that contributes, I think, to a further shift in perspective on the part of the Chinese leadership who now, to a certain degree, begin to view American imperialism perhaps as a bit of a spent force, that American imperialism is now in a period of decline. American imperialism is going to lose the war in Vietnam, which of course it does. And American imperialism is now maybe even going on the defensive 
as the tide of national liberation struggles and the tide of revolutionary movements around the world may be on the rise. And so there's a shift in the thinking that now the contradiction with the United States, the contradiction with American imperialism, while it certainly hasn't gone away, is no longer being viewed by the Chinese leadership as the primary focus you know, the thing to which other things have to be subordinated. But instead, they come up with this idea that using this rhetoric of the Soviet Union as social imperialism, that now the contradiction with the Soviet Union has become the primary contradiction, has become the overriding determiner in their geopolitical calculations. And so the overture to the United States that starts with the ping pong diplomacy in Japan and then leads to Kissinger's secret visit in the fall of 71. And finally, of course, to Nixon's open visit in February of 72. That stuff flows out of this shift in the sense of what the real primary issue is. And for at least a period of time, and I don't think this lasts, but for a period of time, the Chinese leadership makes the determination and acts on that determination that they're going to play the American card against the Soviets. So, you know, it's a complex triangular relationship in which, you know, what had been this close fraternal alliance of the Soviets and the Chinese back in the 50s has now been transformed into a situation where, you know, Richard Nixon, the sort of poster boy for American imperialism, you know, is welcomed in Beijing, shaking hands with Zhou Enlai as he gets off the airplane in a very symbolic gesture that completely turns the geopolitical tables and puts the Soviet Union as China's principal antagonist. And of course, as you were just saying, that the Americans are playing this in the most cynical possible way, as imperialism does. But it's a dramatic shift that causes deep contradictions, causes deep frictions within the Chinese leadership itself. Let's really just take a minor detour and talk about that, because you're referring to Lin Biao. Well, you know, Lin Biao, the whole story of Lin Biao's career, his rise in the military, his replacement of Peng Dehuai as defense minister back in the summer of 1959, a lot of that had been based upon his approach to military theory, the theory of people's war, the idea of the People's Liberation Army as a people's army, as a force that was integrated with the masses, that had been central to his rise and to his position within the Chinese leadership. And of course, to see the military as a political force itself, the whole development of the Red Book, the sayings of Chairman Mao, the quotations from Chairman Mao, you know, was part of the political education that was originally produced by the political department of the PLA, and then of course became much more widespread in the course of the Cultural Revolution. And part of that had been a tension, the tension between Lin Biao and Peng Dehuai as military leaders, because Peng Dehuai had been associated with a more Soviet style professionalization model of the People's Liberation Army. And that had been part of those internal divisions within the Chinese leadership back in the 50s and the early 60s. But Lin Biao, apparently, and we don't know a lot of the details of this, but certainly one reasonably coherent interpretation of these events was that Lin Biao saw this shift of Chinese policy, of the Chinese position, 
away from viewing the Soviets as a fraternal ally, or at least a fraternal partner, to a more antagonistic position, and the shift, the idea of some sort of reconciliation or playing the American card with Western imperialism, that he saw this as unacceptable. And he felt that the Chinese leadership and Chairman Mao in particular was making a very serious miscalculation, a very serious political error. And that's what may have triggered whatever it is that specifically happened in the break between Mao and Lin Biao in 1970 that results in Lin Biao dying in an airplane crash in Mongolia, apparently trying to make his way to the Soviet Union. So, you know, as I said, we don't know all the ins and outs of the details of this, but clearly there were deep disagreements and deep contradictions within the leadership. And again, all of this in the context of the Cultural Revolution and the turmoil associated with that. So I think that understanding that this reorientation in Chinese foreign policy, the opening to the United States, the deep rupture with the Soviets, that particular moment at the end of the 60s and beginning of the 70s was one that was fraught with its own internal contradictions. Indeed. And just for those who may be less familiar with this topic, Lin Biao was actually named. He was identified in legal documents as the heir successor to Mao Zedong. So he wasn't just another important person. He was named during the Cultural Revolution that should Mao be incapacitated or die, that he would assume the leadership of the party. So this break in 1969, 1970, as Nixon and the American imperialists are starting to reach out vis-a-vis diplomatic connections with Pakistan, we'll maybe be able to go into some of that. But the opening, the thaw between the US and China, the early stages are happening. Lin Biao clearly, or Again, a lot of it is obscured because of the way the Chinese presented it. He apparently, as one of the left-wing forces in the Chinese Communist Party, objects. There's a falling out. There's a defection or a leaving. He dies in a plane crash along with his wife. Mao actually, in the discussions that come later with Nixon in 1972, he alludes to your intelligence, meaning U.S. and British intelligence, was correct, he says, or more or less correct that there was people who opposed our policy, he's talking about meaning the opening to Nixon, opposed our policy and they tried to fly somewhere and the Soviet Union dug up their corpses in Mongolia but didn't make any public comment on it. So Mao is sort of alluding to it. And again, you can't really know, but the fact that he's alluding to it in his discussions, now declassified discussions with Nixon, seems to verify that. So there's a split or a struggle inside of China. Numerous political divisions are taking place. There was the great proletarian cultural revolution that starts in 1966. Mao, along with Lin Biao and the People's Liberation Army, being part of that sort of leftist push during 1966, that really came to an end. Well, it doesn't formally come to an end for a decade, but the the height of it certainly was ended by 1969. And China is making this reorientation slowly at first, quietly behind the scenes. But then, as you say, Ken, and this is where I want to sort of conclude, it leads to Kissinger coming to China secretly and meeting repeatedly in secret with the Chinese to set the stage for Richard Nixon to come to China in 1972. Now, I want to also 
explain, and you can, because you were at Kent State, you had been indicted for anti-war activities after the massacre at Kent State. So you were part and parcel of, as a key organizer in the anti-Vietnam War protest movement. I'll tell you what I thought at the time, how I felt as an organizer. I was very young, of course, and politically young and politically immature. But nonetheless, when Nixon, who we considered to be the worst war criminal in the world, the second one being Henry Kissinger, arrive in China and are clinking champagne glasses with Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai, and the Chinese are playing turkey in the straw, and at the same time, the U.S. was carpet bombing Vietnam because the Vietnamese during that period in the winter and spring of 72 were carrying out what they hoped would be the final offensive, the National Liberation Front in the North Vietnamese Army and guerrillas, the final offensive to evict American imperialism from Vietnam. The idea that Nixon would be there and being toasted as a kind of a wonderful, peaceful person, I have to say it was shocking. It was shocking for those of us who had read the Little Red Book or Lin Piao's Long Live the Victory of People's War. You know, American leftists all over the world were studying those tracks, those documents. We felt we were part of a global current that was in some ways anchored in China. And so it was discordant. But of course, we were politically immature. We didn't, I mean, we couldn't have even contemplated it before it happened. Anyway, it was a big political shock. Absolutely. I mean, the images, the pictures on television of the president's motorcade going from the airport down into the city of Beijing and all those uh, images of banquets and toasting and everything, it was psychologically very difficult because the war, of course, in Vietnam was still going on. We were still marching in the streets. The huge mobilization demonstrations in Washington, D.C., half a million people and more, you know, demanding an end to the war and the horrible cynicism of American negotiations in Paris with the Vietnamese where they just protracted the war on and on. And, and of course, the Christmas bombing, December of 1972, after Nixon had been to China, all of it, it was pretty horrifying. And I think that for those of us who thought of ourselves, you know, as revolutionaries, as socialists, trying to be part of this, what we had felt was a global movement, it required a lot of stamina, I think, to, to sort of come through that period. You know, I think in some ways, one might hope at the time that what it represented was the strength of China, the strength of the revolutionary movement that here, you know, even as America was being defeated in Vietnam, here was Nixon going to China. And that gesture, when he gets off the airplane and shakes Zhou Enlai's hand, you know, that was a very deliberate symbolic act because back in 1954 in Geneva, when the Chinese were part of the negotiations to end the French war in Vietnam, the American Secretary of State at the time had refused to shake Zhou Enlai's hand. And this was a big snub that was noted in the press at the time. So Nixon, you know, bounces off the stairs there from his airplane and steps right up and shakes Zhou Enlai's hand. It was possible to try to spin that as, you know, here's the Americans as the supplicants coming to China. But that was pretty illusory and certainly not something that could be maintained very long. 
It did, on the other hand, you know, this did allow China eventually to take its seat at the United Nations. It shifted eventually by the end of the 70s with the full diplomatic recognition of China. It did create a more justifiable position for China in the international order. But it certainly was a psychologically contradictory experience to go through from the late 60s to the early 70s and to have Richard Nixon being feted in the great hall of the people just seemed remarkably unreal or surreal in so many ways. Yeah, it was jarring. And, you know, I had at that time, 1972, I... You know, there was so much interest in socialism and anti-imperialism and Marxism at the time. All of us who were very, very, very young people, teenagers really, were, you know, always in the middle of this or that political argument or polemic. But I can remember that those who were in the Maoist movement and defending this were making the argument that Nixon was coming to Beijing on his knees that the imperialists had not wanted to recognize China. They had deprived China of its seat at the UN. You know, everything the US had said and done about China to put China in a corner was being undone. So I understood the validity of it, but I felt at that time that what was really happening was that Nixon was playing the Soviets and the Chinese off of each other. The US was desperate because not only could they not win in Vietnam, they were going to be militarily defeated. And the only way the Americans could sort of have peace with honor, as Nixon always said, which is a complete oxymoron in terms of when you think about how the war was conducted, carpet bombing endlessly the people of Vietnam. But really what was happening was the Vietnamese weren't ready to negotiate anything other than their complete and absolute victory with reuniting Vietnam. But as you can see, and as we can see from these documents, these now declassified documents, and people can see them for themselves at the University of Southern California, U.S. China Institute. There's a whole collection of Mao Zedong, Richard Nixon, Zhou Enlai, Henry Kissinger documents that the whole thinking, the calculation of Nixon and Kissinger was that the Soviets would be afraid of a U.S.-China relationship. The Chinese were afraid, always afraid, and had been afraid through the whole last 15 years of a U.S. Soviet alliance against China, and that by pitting them now in full struggle against each other, and of course, the U.S. didn't stop reaching out to the Soviet Union, the so-called period of detente increased, that the U.S. could convince both China and the Soviets to put pressure on the Vietnamese to sign the deal, sign the Paris peace treaty that Kissinger had negotiated, that the Vietnamese knew in the long run if we don't sign it, we will win. They didn't want to have what happened to Korea, where there was the partition of the country permanently, which is partly how the Korean War ended. The Vietnamese were prepared to fight and fight and fight until final victory, but they needed the support. I mean, you can't shoot down B-52 bombers flying at 30,000 feet above North Vietnam with bows and arrows. You need surface-to-air missiles. They came from the Soviet Union. The military aid from the Soviet Union and China was decisive. And you can see that the imperialists really did then put this China-US-Soviet triangular competition as to put pressure onto the Vietnamese. And the Vietnamese, in fact, signed the treaty. But it turned out, as history would have it, that as soon as the treaty was signed and the US left, the US troops left in 1973, 
and Nixon came down and was, you know, forced to resign rather than be impeached in 74, the Vietnamese just went for it anyway. And in fact, finally and ultimately liberated all of Vietnam and the U.S. military, the remnants of it and their Saigon puppets were routed in the most ignominious ways. So, you know, history was on the side of Vietnam. But again, for our listener today, this is a context that was very, very disappointing, really, for those around the world who had mobilized with complete solidarity with the cause of the Vietnamese people to reclaim their own country. Yes, it was a dispiriting time. I remember feeling very excited and very pleased, of course, with the eventual liberation of Southern Vietnam and the victory of the Vietnamese people. And I felt that, you know, the American anti-war movement had at least to some degree contributed to that. And that felt like a great outcome, a great victory. But the course of events with China was just so so difficult to make sense of. And as you say, I mean, the Americans went along playing both sides, playing with the Soviets, playing now with the Chinese. And really, the Americans came out of that in the best shape. American imperialism was not, as Chairman Mao perhaps had thought for a while, a spent force. It was certainly in difficulties. And Nixon apparently was able to have this idea, have this conception that by opening to China, he would, even though I think they already knew that they were going to lose in Vietnam, that they would salvage their international position in a way that certainly proved to be true. Even as he went down, personally, his political fortunes collapsed. But American imperialism struggled on and recovered. And of course, in the Reagan years, went on to achieve its final destruction of the Soviet socialist system. All right, Ken, we are going to leave it right there. Again, fascinating discussion. So we've looked at China in the socialist camp, then China being cast out or having partly left the socialist camp in the 1960s. And then we're going to talk about the 1970s, where China's not only not in and not just out of the socialist camp, it actually becomes an adversary of the Soviet Union and enters into an alliance with the United States, which finally convinces the United States that there should be an opening to China. We know that China was open to the West for foreign direct investment. It was an economic development strategy. But of course, the US and the Western capitalists had their own motives. The Western military had their own motives. We're going to talk in our next segment about the 1970s, which again leads to the 1980s of the advent of Ronald Reagan, and finally the collapse, the ultimate collapse of the socialist camp, and how that impacts China during those next two important decades. Again, there have been so many twists and turns in the US-China relationship since the victory of the Chinese Revolution in 1949. It's really important if we want to understand what's going on today to understand what happened yesterday and the day before. We can't enter the historical process sort of three quarters of the way through the movie. We have to start from the beginning, which is why, Ken Hammond, I'm so happy that we are able to have these discussions with you. That was Ken Hammond. He is a professor of East Asian and global history at New Mexico State University. He is also an activist with the organization Pivot to Peace. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. 
If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.